You may be seated. We we move into the sermon, and I want to thank Josh and Jamie for the zeal and the passion. Um, I know it comes from God through His Spirit, and so we're honored that you would share a piece of your heart and your passion with us this morning. And I'm also keenly aware that you might not have... Uh, understood everything Josh was talking about. It may have sounded foreign. And so I want to encourage you um, to purchase Let the Nations Be Glad. Let the Nations Be Glad, Psalm 67. And read the book with your Bible in hand. I believe you'll better understand when you're finished the mission which God has commissioned us to. I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time there, just, but I do want to encourage you because I know Josh used that book and you might have thought, well, what's the big deal? This book is revolutionary, not because of the writer, but because of the Word and the truth. It changed me. Um, it is the most profound work in our day on missions. And for some of you, it's a stretch. But trust me when I say that when you're in a culture that is dark, we, we were in the outskirts, in the village um, area of China for a week. It is dark. The countenance of the people is cast down. There is no light. Jennifer Campbell's experienced it in Egypt. It is not some charismatic feeling that you get. It is a fact. They are dark. No matter how much they try to laugh, there's sadness. No matter how much they try to smile, it's mere emotion. After being in those places for a week, you thirst to see somebody with a twinkle in the eye, with a countenance that's uplifted. And for us it happened in Guangzhou when we went on the street to shop and we ran into a man we had been told was a Christian. And from the time he walked out the door of the business next to his, I knew it was him. He was absolutely different from everyone around him. And he had not spoken. He had not introduced himself. Nobody said, that's the one we've been telling you is a Christian. I just knew it. Absolutely. And I walked to him and said, you're a believer, aren't you? Yes. And there's a real light which shines. And John says, the darkness cannot extinguish it. And Matthew says, it is like a city which is set on a hill. It cannot be put out. And so when you go to the mission field, when you travel to these far-flung places, or you go to inner-city Anniston, 
And you look in those faces which are so downcast and so downtrodden. You don't think, man, I got it better than they got. You think, oh, how good God is. And His glory takes on a whole new profound meaning. It no longer is some rational thing we talk about, but it is on the face of the one who is a believer. I challenge you to rethink what you live your life for. I challenge you. I'm not trying to tell you, go to China. What I'm trying to tell you is, what are you living for? What I'm asking you to do is examine what is your purpose? Why are you here? And I trust that with Bible in hand and some helps along the way, you will, the Spirit of God will penetrate the hardness of your heart and say, it is for the glory of God that I exist. And at that point, the missions class can begin. It's for the glory of God. So now we can talk about what your life will do because we know what it's about. And it really ties into what our topic, our message is, this idea of God's glory. In Jesus' name, John 14, verses 13 through 14. Some guys I spent a lot of time with on Friday mornings, they told me, sometimes you're bad to say John 14 and never give us a verse or whatever. You get so wound up, you just forget. So I want to make sure that's clear. John 14, I don't doubt that I do that. I'm saying... John 14, 13 through 14. It's the end of the verses we covered last week in the sermon. But I wanted to come back to the end because it's so important. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus speaking, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We've been in John 14 for several weeks now, and in the first verses, Jesus kind of was cheering the heart of the disciples. He was saying in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Don't be anxious. You believe in God, believe also in me. He was grounding their need to not be fearful because he had said, Judas is going to deny me, and Peter, I mean, Judas is going to betray me, Peter's going to deny me. Now they're all unsettled. They're undone. And I'm going to go away and you can't come. They're undone, utterly torn to pieces. And Jesus then comes right back to say, let not your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. He grounds their lack of fear in the, the, the being, the character, the person of God, and the faith which connected them to the person of God. Anxiousness shouldn't overwhelm you because I'm God and you believe in me. Keep believing in me. Some of you just got all you needed today. If you get nothing else, you needed that. Because your life is filled with anxiousness and fear and worry and concern. And you're running around like a little field mouse trying to get everything done. How will I ever get it all done? And Jesus is saying... Live like you believe in me. I'm God. It won't cure all anxiousness, maybe. 
in its practical outworkings, but it'll cure the heart of anxiousness. And then we can deal with the outcroppings, the bad theology you might carry around that God's going to swat you like a fly swatter or whatever it is you might be waiting on. But the big heart of it is you don't believe you, you don't believe I'm God because you are anxious. If you believed I was God, you wouldn't be anxious. And so we have this text and then he drops down not to put their hope in mansions of gold and pearly gates and all those things, but to say, I'm going to prepare a place for you and you can live with me forever. So don't be afraid. You can't follow me now, but I'm going away and I'm coming again. If it wasn't that way, I wouldn't have told you it was that way. How will he prepare the place? By the cross. He's going to die. He's not the eternal carpenter, we said. He is the all-sufficient Savior who died on the cross, purchasing the deed of the new heaven and the new earth for everyone who believes in him so that you can live with him forever. Have faith in me. Believe in me. And then we drop down from there into the teaching of the unity of the Godhead last week. And the fact that based on that unity, we have unity and are able to accomplish more than even Jesus accomplished in quantity, not quality, to the ends of the earth you will go. Jesus never left Palestine physically. When he died, he had 120 people, maybe 500, 120 in the core. That's what was in the upper room out of three and a half years of ministry. A very small church, a church the size of this church. And he had labored labored three and a half years. And Peter left the upper room filled with the Spirit and preaches one time and has 3,000 people added to the church. It doesn't mean Peter's greater than Jesus. It means that the Spirit now is working among all believers to bring about greater quantity of work. It's going to the ends of the earth. And in short order, they went to the whole Roman Empire. And now we're still reaching people that are unreached. over 2,000 years later, and there's still whole groups of people that don't have a gospel church. And and, and that goes to Josh's statement. Missions exist because worship does not. The goal is not to get one person saved in each culture around the world. The, The goal of missions is that God be worshiped in every culture around the globe. We need churches there. Living, breathing, preaching, churches in every culture. That's what the commission is. If it was just individuals we were worried about, as Josh and I were talking about, we'd kidnap a few from everywhere and make them pray a prayer and it'd be over with. It's not that simple. It's about a global body. It's about churches in every culture. And so he turns to the unity of the Godhead, propels this unity in the body, which creates greater quantity of work than the world's ever known. And... It's still continuing today. And then he comes down to this idea, which we're on today. If he had ended the paragraph at verse 12, I think there'd be some question, but not a whole lot. People would be like, I'm with it. I'm there. But he had to keep going. He brings this idea of prayer. He unsettles them again. These are controversial words. They've been controversial since they were spoken. Jesus' words at this point cause us to pause and reflect over their exact meaning. You'll do anything we ask in your name. If you ask me anything, I will do it. 
In our day, there are many who take this passage to mean that God is now bound to answer every prayer that is stated to be in the name of Jesus. As if that's the magic formula. I can pray any prayer I want to, and if I close it with, in Jesus' name, then He has to do it. He has no choices. They base that, their fallacy is based on this kind of logic. Number one, Jesus said that we must pray in His name. Number two, Jesus said that if we prayed in His name, He would do anything that we asked Him to do. Number three, I close my prayer in the words, in Jesus' name. Number four, I have faith that Jesus will do what I asked Him to do, which makes faith the crux of how it gets done, puts the power in our hands. If I believe enough, God will do it. Five, therefore, my prayer will be answered, because Jesus promised that it would be answered. And do I need to tell you that this kind of thinking is all flawed, throughout it's flawed. It's sadly mistaken. Teaching like this leads to frustration and bewilderment among the people. You've probably met them. I prayed for 12 years and Mama died of cancer anyway. God didn't do it. It leads to a lot of backtracking. Where they pray the prayer and they're very earnest and they're doing what you told them to do and it doesn't happen and then what do you do? Well, it's your fault. You just didn't believe enough for you to believe Jesus would have done it. It leads to all kinds of bewilderment, frustration, bad theology. And the reality is that it robs God of the glory that's due His name. When we put the power, when we put the ball in our court, based on our faith, God will do whatever we ask in Jesus' name. So I pray for Mama, and she's got a stomach ulcer that bleeds and she dies, and then God failed. He didn't keep His word to me. There's more than a few people at home this morning, not in a local body, because they believed this garbage to be biblical. It is not biblical. It is a lie. It is as if we can simply say a magic phrase and the universe will be moved on on our behalf. You've probably heard prayers offered up that would violate almost every clear principle taught in the Word of God, ended in Jesus' name, and people say, that's a great prayer. I mean, we, we just really miss it, don't we? Scripture, Scripture teaches us differently. This is shallow and false teaching. But, now that you've gotten to say, in your heart at least, because y'all don't like to say amen out loud, you're afraid somebody might look at you. You've been beating that charismatic to death in your mind right now. Yeah, that's exactly, I wish my neighbor was here. Because that crazy church, he needs to hear this. Before you go too far, let me say what our error is. Because we fail in this regard, in this passage, because in our thinking, prayer is, is just... Let me make sure I say this right. I've, I've heard many people, and I have fallen prey to this in my thinking, and they expound a teaching rooted in worldly, fatalistic philosophy and hyper-Calvinism. Here goes. God's going to do what God's going to do, and if I don't pray, it doesn't matter. Not true. Absolute fallacy 
as big as the hyper position on the other end of, if I pray and say Jesus' name, they got it. God's got to do it. It's just as deadly. It's just different. But it's a false. It's not true. These people believe that the only purpose of prayer, the only purpose of prayer is to change the person who's praying. And it sounds good. It sounds holy. I've said it. When you pray, you're simply being changed so that you become more like God. That's true, but that's only half the truth. God has set up the universe in tension so that prayer matters. Sure, God does not need you to pray, but He has authorized and ordained that you will pray and will that you do so, and then He works. He doesn't work discounting your prayer. He works through your prayer. That gets you all kinds of uncomfortable. It bothers you, doesn't it? I can see it. It's like, uh, I ain't sure. No, I believe in a sovereign God, so therefore nothing can affect Him. That's fatalism. That's Greek philosophy. That's not Christianity. Paul did not believe that at all. He makes that clear because he says for you to call on God every minute of every day. And he prayed prayers that don't sound like he thought everything's in lockstep and if I don't do anything, God's going to do it anyway. He prayed prayers as if God listened and answered those prayers. And so prayer does not only change the one who's praying It actually, because God has willed it to be this way, brings about a result from God. How many times have you read the passage where Moses pleads with God on behalf of the Israelites and you explain the whole thing away as God's just play-acting with Moses? He never really had that feeling of destroying the Israelites. That's just man's way of putting it. No, God really had that emotion. And Moses prayed on their behalf. And God answered his prayer. It's not open theology to say that prayer changes things. It's biblical theology. Because God has willed it to be such. You know, the, the problem is our, we, the reason I think we're demotivated in prayer, one reason is we don't think it does anything. We really don't think it does anything. Prayer really makes, prayer really does make the world go round. Because God's designed it this way. He didn't have to design it that way, but He chose to. Prayer really does change things. Prayer actually brings about the will of God. So today I want us to look at this one passage on prayer that is instructive as to the purpose and the effect of prayer. I'm not going to bounce all over the Bible doing a topical treatment on prayer. There's lots of verses to go to, but this is the one we're at, sovereignly. And, and, and I want to say as we head into the text, Grace Fellowship has a great weakness in our spiritual life together. I want to say that as long as we are not a people of prayer, we will have little to no eternal impact on this community or the world. 
Christ will not use this body of believers until we are dependent on Him in prayer. He will not. Not that He can't. He doesn't desire to. Because the one who supplies the power receives the glory. Understand that. In anything you do in life, whoever has the power to do it receives the glory at the end. And so if I'm out there doing a bunch of things in the name of Jesus, good things even, as Josh said, without prayer, without pleading and begging God to do it through and in me, very little will be accomplished. When I die, I've done a lot of good things. But eternally, many of my works... Do you think, what makes the giants of the faith stand above it? Like the Himalayas, you know, you have ridges that go up and down, and then you have one that shoots high. What makes that guy that? I'm convinced it's prayer. Some of the greatest churchmen in all of history were not that good at preaching. They were not that good at service. They were not that good at a lot of things, but they broke their knees begging God to do something. And he did. And we remember them. This church won't be remembered. It won't last. It won't stand. And it won't be remembered. Unless we are a people of prayer. Because God is after His own glory, not our glory. He is after His own glory. It's not my intention to browbeat and shame people. But I do want to say something. We have prayer meeting here for five months at nine o'clock in the morning. It is poorly attended. Poorly attended. And I know there's a lot of reasons not to be here. But there's one reason to be here. And it is God's glory. And so I don't mind saying to you, That until that changes, and you say, well, I pray at home. It's hard for me to believe. I'm not the judge. Maybe you do. It's just hard for me to believe. The easiest discipline in prayer is corporate prayer. It's the easiest one. It has the least involvement, really, of a requirement. You got to get up, put your clothes on, drive here, and sit down and join us. If you're not willing to do that, very few of you, will actually rise an hour early to pray. Go to bed two hours late on your knees. Some of you may, most will not. I'm not the only one who feels this way. I, I'm amazed, you know, that people say, well, I just feel like I'm being manipulated to pray. That's not our intention. We simply want to come together to ask, seek, and knock. And to plead that God would do His work through us. And I invite you to come. Not so we can have a full house on Saturday, Sunday at 9. But I ask you to come for His sake, for His glory. To put rubber to the road. In prayer together the church has been clear in preaching on prayer um, throughout the centuries for time's sake i will not cover my 
proof of that, but if you've got questions, I'll give them to you. The Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism are filled, the end, with prayer. How to pray. Why we pray. There's been no dispute, really, in our, our Reformed tradition as to the importance of prayer. So let's look at this passage. Jesus, first of all, first statement, straight out of the text, Jesus will answer every prayer that is offered in his name. So what is that? If it's not just the mantra at the end of the prayer, what, does it, what is it? Prayer in his name requires that we be a true believer. No one can pray that is not a true believer and expect answers. God doesn't, is not answering the prayers in the same way of lost men and women. He is not. His children are in, in, in tow here. Look in 12 verse 8. I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. I take that title about believing. The same people are commanded then to ask, right? Believers are doing great works in his name. And then he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. You see that? Believers are instead here. It's a father-son analogy. We live in a neighborhood. If the neighbor's kid's crying out for help, I might go. It's David Cadles, so I probably would go. I might not. It's not my child. I might think in my mind that somebody else's child. They're calling for their daddy. They're not calling for me. But I can be anywhere and one of my children cry out, Daddy, help me. I assume I must go. I'll run to them. Relationship, they are my child. I'll run to them. What God is saying is the same thing. We are His children. He loves to answer the prayers of His children. He loves to. Matthew 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who James 1, 16-17 says, all good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights, how much more will he give you good gifts to those who ask? God loves to give his children good gifts. So, God answers the prayers of true believers. Praying in His name requires that I'm a believer. Praying in His name means that we do trust in His work, not our work. It requires that when my prayer is finished, it's about Him and not me. This does away with selfish praying. And it also does away with prideful praying. I served. R.A. Torrey was asked one time at a conference. I served in the Presbyterian Church as a, uh, a member for 30 years. I've been a superintendent of Sunday school 25 years. I've been an elder for 20 years. God doesn't answer my prayer. What's the problem? Torrey quickly said in front of the whole conference, you're asking out of pride because you think God owes you something for your service. And he moved on. And the guy came to him after the conference broken, saying, no one's ever told me that. I've said that over and over to pastors, and nobody's bold enough to tell me I was praying in pride. Thank you. 
A lot of times we go to God as if He owes us. God, I've been being a good husband. I've been doing good with my children. I've been working hard for Your glory. I've done all these things. Now all I'm asking is this one simple thing of You. Do it for me. It's prideful praying. When we pray in His name, it's not about what we've done. It's about what He's done. When we pray in His name, it invokes the cross. I can't pray anything that's not through the cross, through the gospel. I can't pray anything and expect it to be done that's not prayed through the grid of the gospel. So it does away with the outlandish idea that I can ask Him for a Lamborghini and it will show up at my house the next day free of charge. It does away with that prayer. Praying in His name means that we are asking for things which are befitting of His character. The meaning of the word name in our text is the same as the Old Testament. When you look back at the Old Testament, you see that a name meant something. Now we name them after kids, after movie stars and all that kind of stuff. I'm not picking on you if you did that. But that's the trend of the day. Names in the Old Testament meant something. Woe be unto you if your mother died while giving birth to you. The name might not be that good. The name meant something. It meant it was the character of the person. So they strove to give their children names which, be, which were befitting of good godly character to call that child to good godly character. The same is true here. God's name is being invoked. Therefore, I can't pray anything that violates His character. If I do, I can't expect it to be done. It's out of bounds. Simply by the caveat, in my name. Praying in His name means that we are living a life in submission to Him. We pray the way we live. Listen to your prayers sometimes. When they're focused around you and yours, it's the, it's, it's the idol of your life. And when it's focused around Him and His glory, He is the one you worship. You live the way you pray. You pray the way you live. If you don't live according to His will, through submission to Him, you can't expect that the prayer will be answered. Secondly, Jesus glorifies the Father by answering every prayer in His name. Jesus' mission in life was to glorify His Father. Therefore, when He's answering prayers according to His name, He's answering them for the glory of the Father. Jesus is glorifying the Father by answering prayers that focus on the Father's glory. It's not just help my neighbor get, sa- help my neighbor get saved. It's God, let your glory shine in His home. Let His countenance be lifted up like Moses when He came off Mount Sinai. May His children be changed for eternity because you are a glorious God. Instead of just, God, help Grace Fellowship have a few more people. Help us baptize a few more than we did last year. Oh God, help us be all we can be. The focus of the prayer is God and His glory, which may entail a lot of things which we initially repel from, but in the end submit to because our lives match His character. Jesus will do anything, thirdly, a believer asks of him in his name. I say that without qualification except that it's in his name because that's what Jesus did. And I don't say this a lot. I'm not saying it the wrong way. Take it the right way. If you don't like that, talk to him about it. 
You can talk to me about it, but listen. We can add all the man and worldly and church etiquette statements to his statement we want. In the end, his statement is authoritative. Ours is our opinion. He doesn't need us to put words in his mouth. If he wanted to put a list of 18 caveats by this statement, he would have done it. He said it only needs one. Pray in my name. And I'm done. Pray there. If you do, I'll do it. We're so worried about our image that we might be thought of as charismatic. God forbid. That's the worst curse you could ever be labeled at, according to some in our churches. And God's probably hoping we become more charismatic, biblically charismatic, believing the Spirit is real and active in our day. Some of you pray and it doesn't get above this ceiling. It doesn't get to the ceiling because it's filled with apologies about it, don't, you know, don't do it this way and don't do that. No, pray with faith and say, God, now please hear this. God, please hear this prayer only by the name of Christ. I'm submitted to Him and do Your will. In the end, I submit to Your will. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but God, do it for Your sake. Prayers like that offered up are powerful prayers which invoke the will of God to be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will isn't done in this place, not because he's not willing, but because we're not praying. We cannot thumb a finger at God when things don't go well and say, you didn't do it. He's saying, you didn't ask in my name or I would have done it. Jesus emphasizes anything can be prayed in his, in his name. He says it twice. Whatever you ask in my name, verse 13. Verse 14, if you ask it in my name, anything in my name. He emphasizes in his name. Two emphasis. Repeated. He repeats for emphasis. And then he says, I will do it because it glorifies my Father. In the end, we say the eternal impact of a church or a community or an individual believer is determined by their willingness to ask for all things in Christ's name for the glory of God the Father. The eternal impact of this church or any church, this me the believer or you the believer, the eternal impact will be judged by our willingness to pray by His name, in His name, for God's glory. You may have momentary impact without His aid, without His work, but it will die. And it will be burned away in the end. But it will last for all of eternity if it is done in His name and is done for God's glory. It will last for eternity. So I ask this probing question and we pray and close. Right now, in your life, what can you thumb and say? This is being done in the name of Christ. This is being prayed in the name of Christ for God's glory. When I did it in my own life this week, there were very few things in that column. And there were a lot of things on this side of the page being done for my glory, for this church's glory, for my family's glory. Lots of things done in our name, Grace Fellowship's name. And we say, why is there not more far-reaching impact? The preaching, it's good. The singing, it's good. We do Bible study. We do discipleship. Why isn't there more result? God's not doing it. 
And he says, you never asked me to do it. You embarked on your own journey. You wanted to do it your way. At the end, that life will be burned away. The soul saved, life burned away. But the life which is lived in His name for God's glory stands for eternity. There will be saints in the kingdom of God in eternity who will walk by landmarks from this life. I believe that as sure as I stand here. What do I mean? It's like stones of remembrance in the Old Testament. Put this pillar up and don't ever forget what I did here. And that's going to be the reality for some in eternity. Their eternity is going to be filled with, I remember God doing that right there in our family. He did it for His glory. And it's still there. It's still growing and flourishing. Praise to His name. And over here, our church, I remember we went here to this place and shared with those people. But really, it was all about God's glory. And that one person was saved. And there's a whole church now. In eternity because of that. And there's going to be a lot of people in heaven glad to be there, but walking by saying, I I don't see any stones much. But there's one right there. And there's one over there. They'll still worship and praise God. Don't hear that wrong. But the experience of those submitted and following the will of God through the name of Christ for God's glory of heaven will be much greater than those who were saved and who lived for His glory in some ways, but were, in a sense, doing it in their name. So what will it be? A life lived for me and my glory or for Him and His glory? Our prayers tell the truth. When you pray, consciously pray. Every request, every word in His name. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we ask that you convict and change.